Well, good evening, everybody. Peace be with you. Thank you. My name is Dodds, and as Brandon said, I'm the pastor of parishes and equipping. And what that means really is that I oversee um, the health training assessment um, and, uh, and resourcing of our parish families. And, um, and like Brandon said, I, I love talking about parishes. So if, if you're if you're up for it, come grab me after the, well, don't grab me after, the, that's aggressive, but come talk to me after the gathering, we'll, and we'll talk about it. I, I would love to talk about it. Um, so the season of Epiphany is coming to a close today, um, and for the, for the past five weeks, we've taken time to celebrate the appearing of Jesus. That's what Epiphany means, is that Jesus has appeared, he has become manifest, he has incarnated and come and appeared to us. Um, and we've taken time to look at some, some specific just kind of snapshots in his life, some events in his life while he was here, um, and how his appearance really established something new, specifically a new kingdom that, in fact, he is ruling and reigning now as king. Um, and today we're going to look at his transfiguration, which is one of the more miraculous things that Jesus ever performed, because it highlights Jesus as a very significant figure. And... It's important that we're talking about his significance because we, we are preoccupied with significance. Um, not just that events in our lives have significance, but that we do. If you'll remember, there was a movie made in the early 2000s called A Beautiful Mind. It was based on a book chronicling the life of John Nash, who was a Nobel laureate in economics. And there's a particular scene um, in the movie where he... He's standing on one of the one of the sort of the rooftops of one of the Princeton buildings, and he's speaking with his his roommate. They're sharing a, a flask, and he says he says this. He says, "I cannot go on wasting time with these classes and these books, memorizing the weak assumptions of lesser mortals. I need to look through to the governing dynamics to find a truly original idea." It's the only thing, it's the only way that I'll ever distinguish myself. It's the only way that I'll ever matter. And we feel that way too. Because John Nash's articulation of this in particular is not just his own view, but his confession is our confession. I need to be this. If I can become this kind of person, then I'll be someone. If I can be this kind of mother, if I can be this kind of friend, if I can be this kind of employee, if I can be this kind of spouse, if I can love in this way, if I can work hard like this, then I'll be someone. See, the need for significance is the steady hum beneath all of our actions. It's the reason that we do anything is because we want significance and acceptance. And you, you, you tailor it down to the smallest thing that you do and I can tell you, you look at it, why am I doing this? Because I want to matter. I want to be significant even if it's in a small way. One theologian says, said it this way, he said, I find in my heart an insidious desire to be recognized and applauded. I work hard. I have natural gifts. And I want people to notice this and say something to me 
and to the people around me so that they will know how glorious I am. It's pretty real. The Bible, though, has something to say in response to this need in our text today. Now, the, the events leading up to the transfiguration are very interesting because Jesus' fame has been growing. Notoriety has been growing. People have been following him. King Herod has his eye on him. The Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of the day, have their eye on him. The disciples have been called. They are following him. So he has this huge amount of popularity that's just continuing to grow. And even leading up to the transfiguration, we see he heals a blind man, he heals a deaf man, he takes a small amount of food, and he feeds 4,000 people. And as he's walking with his disciples, and all of this attention is being paid to him, he says, so who does everybody say that I am? And the disciples say, they actually think that you're a dead prophet reborn. Maybe your curiosity about Jesus is growing as well. See, the same account of the, of the transfiguration that we're going to read about is paralleled in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And I found it interesting in looking in John that there's not an account of the transfiguration. Because John is up there on the mountain with Jesus. But I think if you look at John 1, you'll see that the transfiguration had an effect on John. Because he's, it, is a, it is a chapter of worship. Of, of seeing Jesus as the light, as the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. So tonight, what we're going to do is we're just going to look at three things. We're going to look at inglorious us. We're going to look at glorious Jesus. And then we're going to look at glorified in Christ. And before we look directly at Jesus, let's take a look at the text and the people in it. Take a look at ourselves and ask some questions. And it's important as we get into this that we define the word glory because we're going to be mentioning it a few times and I want us to have this as a working definition so that we know when we use this word what we're talking about. The word glory means honor, reputation, meaning, and significance. And it conveys, if this helps you, it conveys what is permanent versus what is fleeting. What is substantial versus what is insignificant what is important versus what is unnecessary, and what is real versus what's an illusion. Now let's take a look at the transfiguration. The word itself here in the Greek is the word for metamorphosis. And the word literally means that his appearance was changed. Now maybe that doesn't give us a lot to go on, but there's a richness here. There's a richness here because it was enough to terrify Peter, John, and James. Peter's account reads like this in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, it says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The transfiguration itself, if we look at the other accounts in Matthew 17 and in Luke 9, we get a little bit more of a picture that his face was altered, that it shone like the sun, that his clothes were as white as light, that they were beyond bleached. And this is important because, as one commentator says, in the Old Testament, the glory of God was always represented by brilliant light. 
the veil of Christ. What we're seeing here is the veil of Christ's humanity being pulled back and his divine light being shown to the disciples. This light, this radiance, this tangible glory of God is coming from Jesus himself. It's a confirmation of Peter's confession when, when he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the one that we've been reading about. You are the one that we've been waiting for. You are the Messiah. So with that in mind, just a little bit of, okay, this is the transfiguration. Something miraculous has happened. The glory of Jesus is being shown we, we know that God showed his glory through light in the Old Testament, so there's connection there. It's terrifying. It's overwhelming. But what is everybody else doing on the mountain? Why is Moses there? Why is Elijah there? Why are the disciples there? Because James, I mean, James, John, and Peter regularly chosen to, cho- to, to join Jesus. He pulled them in regularly, this intimate group of three men. And it's honestly more probable that they felt favored and were seen as such from other people, even other disciples, that they were favored. They had maybe a particular honor and worth that other people didn't have. And in Matthew's gospel, it was actually, interestingly enough, it was John and James that were wondering who would sit next to Jesus in heaven. Who's going to hold a wonderful place of honor with this man. Well, John and James are jockeying for position. But even though they had seen the glory of God before them on earth, even though they had seen this glory, they're they're going to want to jockey for position with Jesus later. And it just shows you that even when they were in the presence of the glory of Jesus, that it wasn't enough for them. Moses and Elijah were Jewish heroes glorious in everyone's eyes. Moses himself was chosen by God to free the Jews from slavery in Egypt, and God spoke to him face to face, gave him the law, which was a glorious gift that taught Israel how to live as a flourishing community. So Jews saw Moses as being worthy to talk to God, and they saw themselves as worthy of being able to be given the law. They saw themselves as glorious. So here we see The disciples may be seeing themselves as glorious, who's going to sit at the left and right of Jesus. And Moses being seen as, that's why God loves us, the Jews, is because he gave us a messenger and he gave us the law. We're better than other people. We're more glorious than other people. Elijah himself was chosen by God to call the Jews back from worshiping false gods. And he spoke to God too on a mountaintop, witnessed God's glory And he himself called fire down from heaven, raised a person from the dead, and was carried off to heaven in a chariot of fire. He didn't actually die. And if you you look at Malachi, the Jews were looking for Elijah to come back, so that's why they thought that Jesus was Elijah reincarnated. But honestly, this was not enough glory for them either. Elijah Moses and the disciples. See, what the Bible is doing here is it's, it's telling us that we're made to hunt down glory. We're made for it. We're built for it. We need it. We want to chase it. 
We want to find what's amazing. We want to find what is amazing and crown it the most amazing thing in the world. It's why we have things like red carpet. It's why we have things like Yelp. Because we want to say, like, this was the best thing I ate. That was the best dress. It was the most beautiful dress that we've ever seen. I know that may be funny, but really, if we look at our motivations, what we're chasing is we want to look at something wonderful and say, that is the best. But oddly enough, in chasing glory, when we do become what we desire, when we do become that wonderful mother, when we do become that wonderful spouse, when we do operate as a wonderful, loving person, when we do work incredibly hard, the significance really is just a shadow. And then we get into it and we realize that that shadow is actually, oh, it's something else. Okay, now I have to go after this. And before you know it, we're chasing shadows round and round, hoping that one thing will finally satiate our need to say, that is the most glorious thing. But the reason that this breaks down is really because, number one, we search for it in ourselves. We truly think that we just need to keep striving to attain significance or we need to keep digging into ourselves to reveal the underlying perfection that's deep down in us, that wonderful, wonderful center of ourselves that's more glorious than anything in the world. But we, in, that, in that pursuit, what we end up is we end up kind of manic, don't we? Because we find wonderful things and we find awful things and we do really good work and we do really poor work and we love people really well and we love people really poorly and we, we find ourselves thrown from misery to elation back and forth and it just, it wears us out. I think we search for it in other things and other people but we find that our need is greater than what can be supplied because people fail us. Things like money turn on us, and when we don't get the significance, the glory that we need, we end up hating the thing that failed our experience, or we hate ourselves for ever trusting it. Even when we do land the promotion, receive the acknowledgement, that little shot of dopamine that comes in, it's never enough. It's, it lasts as long as a stick of gum. And we're hungry and yet repeatedly malnourished by empty plates that promise much and deliver never. But it goes beyond our work. It goes beyond relationships and titles and achievements. It reaches in, even into what we're associated with. Think about the, the happiness and elation that every single Patriots fan felt most recently. I did not share in that at all. Um, but that reveals something about me. Um, and th it's this, that if we can just be associated with what's wonderful, that's my team. My team won. I get to share in the victory. Well, I discovered Radiohead first. I was at the first concert. I was there when they were no one. And now everyone likes them, so I don't like them anymore. We just want to be associated with something, something that's wonderful. If I can just kind of step into the shadow of what's wonderful and say, I'm with them. How about this? How about those of us who have a sneaking suspicion that there's, none, that there's nothing wonderful about us at all? So we need to find someone 
who will find us, who we find wonderful, to find us wonderful so that we can feel wonderful. I know that I'm not worth anything and I can't fix it, but maybe if someone amazing loves me, then I'll be lovely somehow. Somehow I'll matter. Yeah. Even in religion, I think we can use our worth of feeling morally tidy, good behavior. We get a fix over how well we obey the rules and, and we can say, maybe I can attain a reputation and live so well that no one can refuse me, not even God. And we end up angry at him or angry at us when that just doesn't work out. And I think all of this heightened need to secure significance is because underlying it is a fear and it's a, it's a, it is a straight-to-the-heart fear of all of us in this room, and it is this, that there may be a possibility that we aren't significant or glorious at all. And so in that reality, what we do is we borrow glory. We borrow significance, hoping that something will last. Something needs to last. And like I said, the text says today, we were built for glory. We were built to not only need it, but find it. And it's in Jesus. And that's what brings us to, to point number two, glorious Jesus. Because the transfiguration contrasts Jesus and everyone on that mountain. On the mountain, Jesus is the only one that is glowing white. He's the only one. The terrifying glory, the wonderfully terrifying glory of God he was more than a servant and a prophet. Let me just let me let's let me bring our attention to some things here. Moses led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus leads the world out of slavery of sin. God said, "This is my beloved son, more than a servant, more than a messenger, my son, he was the greater Moses." Elijah commanded fire to come down from heaven. Jesus is God come down from heaven. God said, listen to him. The fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. He was the greater Elijah. He was the true prophet. Because he followed the law and did all that his father commanded him, he is the greater disciple. Peter offered to build tents to house Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. But in the transfiguration, Jesus says, I'm the greater tent. I'm the mountaintop. I'm the place of worship. I'm the place of glory. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by, become, by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even on a cross. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of God the Father. He is the beginning. He is the radiant glory of God, and yet he emptied himself on the cross. And this is what he did. In emptying himself on the cross, he became everything that was inglorious about us. So that in him, we would be glorious to the Father. Moses brought the law. Jesus fulfilled it. Elijah brought down God's judgment. Jesus absorbed it. All the significance we have been striving to secure was secured completely in Jesus. And I love the way that this, that the verse 8 reads, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. He's the only one. He's the only one left. He's the only one with glory. Now here's where everything changes. Verse 9, glorious, glorified in Christ. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Here is why, brothers and sisters, guests, if you're not a Christian, here is why the resurrection is the hope of glory. Because when Jesus died the death that we should have died and he rose from the dead, he not only claimed victory over everything that, he, that made us inglorious, he purchased an eternal glory that he shares with us. This is better than the associations that we try to make with things that might be glorious to us. It's more than just standing in the shadow of something that we can associate with. It is God pulling us in, claiming us as his own, and sharing his glory with us that we would be, glory, we would be glorified before the Father. In Christ, we are no longer inglorious. We are beloved sons as he is. We are chosen as he is. God is well pleased in you as he is in Jesus. And even though we only share it in part now, there is coming a day when we will share it, when he will share it completely with us. Paul says it like this to the Corinthians, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The fight for glory has been won. There is nothing to offer. There are no tents to make. There are no mountains to climb. There are no positions to claim. We are free now to worship and find glory where it actually is in Jesus and now that we are free from trying to secure our own glory, we can look to him. And in looking to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, as we behold his glory, we are being transformed into his image made like him from glory to glory. 
And here with Jesus, our thirst for glory is repeatedly satiated. We can pursue his glory to our complete enjoyment. No longer do we have to drink out of lesser streams and brooks. We can drink out of the ocean itself. That's why the resurrection is so glorious. Because we don't have to fall into pessimism and say, there's no glory. Life's hard. Life stinks. And that's it. But we don't have to fall into, into a naive camp either and say, I don't understand why everything keeps failing. We can fall accurately in being hopefully and gloriously optimistic in Jesus. I want you to hear this. You don't have to be a great anything to stand in glory. You don't have to be a great anything to stand in glory if you are in Christ. There is nothing left to secure in Christ because he is glorious. You are glorious before the Father. As a mother, as a friend, as an employee, as a spouse, as a parish leader, as a parish member, as a pastor. All that belongs to Christ now belongs to you in Christ. And don't take it from me. Take it from Paul. Threw it to the Colossians and said, you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Remember John Nash? Remember him? It's the only way that I'll matter. And in Jesus, we more than just matter. We find rest from borrowing glory and finally rest in the forever purchased glory of Jesus. Let me pray for us.